bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by Oasis of Rochester, New York, striving to see that adults age 50 and older have opportunities to pursue vibrant, healthy, productive, and meaningful lives through lifelong learning and the Murray Holly Historical Society, who maintains a local history museum in a restored 1907 New York City Railroad Depot. And their goal is to preserve the past for future generations. And one more quick thing before we begin, we've been asked how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast and you may do so simply by logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. In 1848, Ireland was gripped by famine. Nearly a million people would die of starvation and disease. Desperate for survival, a million more Irish would abandon their homeland and come to America. They departed in what were called coffin ships, so named due to the thousands who died from lack of food and typhoid fever. Many settled in the Five Points area of lower Manhattan, infamous for its squalor, gang violence, and disease. By the end of the Civil War, an estimated 30,000 orphaned and homeless children roamed the streets of New York City. They survived by resorting to petty crime, by begging, and by selling newspapers for a nickel apiece. They slept in alleyways, in cellars, and even in sewers. For protection, they joined the violent street gangs of the Bowery Boys, the Dead Rabbits, and the Roach Guards. In response to this crisis, the age of orphan asylums began, culminating in one of the most improbable, in audacious episodes in American history. It was called the Orphan Train Movement. It endeavored to save these children, lost to the streets and institutions 
by heroes who fought for their liberation. This is, in part, their story. During the 19th century, there were hundreds of orphanages established around the state of New York. They were founded by people that I call visionaries, benefactors, heroes, really, who sacrificed not only their money and their time, but in some cases, their very lives to rescue children they did not know. For instance, Philip E. Thomas is considered the father of American railways. He was the founder of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Thomas was moved by the plight of orphaned Indian children housed on the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation. And through his financial support, he founded the Asylum for Destitute Indian Children. Susan Fenimore Cooper, the daughter of James Fenimore Cooper, noted writer and author, most notably, The Last of the Mohicans, whose family founded the village of Cooperstown. Susan, an author in her own right, would become instrumental in establishing the Orphan House of Cooperstown. Charles Crittenden was a wealthy pharmacist who founded a mission for destitute pregnant women. Crittenden would travel extensively throughout the country, offering $500 to any community that would establish a similar institution. A total of 55 such missions would be eventually created, and some survive to this day. Walder D. Colden, a former mayor of New York City, and the founder of the first penal institution for children called the New York House of Refuge. And it should be noted that a child found guilty of stealing so much as an apple back then would be housed with criminals. And Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, the wife of Alexander Hamilton, she became the founder of New York City's first private orphanage. But would be another individual who radically changed the orphan asylums. And that was Charles Loring Brace. He was born in 1826, and he found himself living among society's most influential people. His mother was a relative of the founder of the American Temperance Society, and his circle of acquaintances included Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Brace would go on to graduate from Yale Divinity School, becoming ordained as a Presbyterian congregational minister. And it's where he could have stayed, living a life of prosperity. But instead, he moved to New York City, where he joined Louis M. Pease as an assistant, where he was brought into contact with the poor especially their children, commonly referred to by the police as street rats. Brace eventually went on to become the director of the Children's Aid Society, which exists to this day. He would ultimately write a number of books about his experiences, including most famously, The Dangerous Classes of New York. But he was also instrumental in bringing about the orphan train movement. It would alter the course 
of American history. Around the same time that Charles Loring Brace was beginning his work on behalf of homeless children in New York City, Sister Mary Irene Fitzgibbon of the Sisters of Charity felt God's calling as well. Sister Irene sought help from charitable women and raised enough money to rent a small house located at 17 East 12th Street in New York City on October 11, 1869. She began preparing for opening what would be called the New York Foundling Hospital. The mission would be to save the thousands of infants and very young children who were being left to perish in alleyways and trash heaps around the city. For many of these infants, Hart Island would be their final destination. Sister Irene included two other sisters, and but with just $5 as an initial budget, they opened their mission. In her own words, Sister Irene recalls, we commenced the work with two cups and saucers. The first morning, we had to beg for our breakfast. We slept on straw the first year, rolling the mattresses up during the day. On the first night of its operation, they penned a note, which they attached to the front door of the mission, asking that any mother leaving her baby on the doorstep to please ring the bell, which would then alert the nuns to what awaited them outside. By the end of the first month of the mission's operations, 50 infants were left on the front steps. By 1910, the mission, by then renamed the New York Foundling Hospital, had seen more than 27,000 children come through its doors. In 1896, Sister Irene passed away at the age of 73. Her life and accomplishments were celebrated by the thousands who took part in her funeral procession. The New York Times referred to her as the great benefactor of humanity. Of those 27,000 children who were left on the front steps, several had notes that were pinned to the child's bedclothing. And I want to read you one of those letters. December 1st, 1877. Dear sister, alone and deserted, I need to put my little one with you for a time. I would willingly work and take care of her, but no one will have me and her too. They all say they would take me if she was two or three years of age. So not knowing what to do with her and not being able to pay her board, I bring her to you, knowing you'll be as kind to her as to the many others who are under your care. And I will get work and try hard to be able to relieve you of the care when I can take her to work with me. She is only three weeks old, and I have not had her christened or anything. No one knows how awful it is to separate from their child but a mother. But I trust you will be kind. And the only consolation I have is if I am spared and nothing prevents and I lead an honest life, that the father of us all will permit us to be reunited. Signed, 
a mother. The orphan trains is a descriptive name used to identify the process of what was called back in the 19th century, placing out, in which homeless, abandoned, and orphaned children living in poverty on the streets of New York City during the latter half of the 19th century and the early parts of the 20th century, and eventually which include other cities, were sent by train to live with rural farming families out west. The program was the brainchild of Charles Loring Brace, the founder of the Children's Aid Society. Brace hit on the idea of sending groups of children to the country and literally letting local residents simply pick out the child they wanted for themselves. Despite the criticism to come, Brace portrayed the program as more humane and effective than the best institutional care and vastly cheaper. The first orphan train carried 54 boys and left New York City on September 20th, 1854. Brace counted that local farmers would be attracted to the idea of having additional hands help around the farm. However, those accepting these children had to commit to providing the orphans with the same food, the same clothing, the same education, and the same spiritual training that they would for their own biological children. Within a week, all but eight of the children were claimed, and those that were not simply went on to Iowa City. And it should be remembered that not all the children, of course, were chosen at each stop. And the ones who weren't uh, developed strategies in order to get themselves uh, chosen by uh, learning how to dance and how to sing. By 1929, the orphan trains would have transported more than 250,000 children to 45 states. The children were also sent as far away as Mexico and Canada. Here's how it worked. In advance of the arrival of the children, local newspapers or through the use of flyers would announce homes wanted for orphans. In each town, a screening committee would be assembled, usually consisting of the town doctor, a member of the clergy, the editor of the newspaper, a respected merchant, and a teacher. And upon arrival, the children would be brought to a local gathering place, an opera house, a town hall, or a church, where local families interested in adding a child would visit with and physically inspect those available. If a match could be made, an agreement would be established and an actual contract would be written between the family and the child. Unfortunately, this process made no account for siblings, most of whom were separated. In its own annual report, the society would often print letters from the children, which, though positive in content, often ended with, if you should see my brother, please tell him where I am. In 1864, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, Mary Ellen Wilson was born 
Her destitute mother began boarding her out, and eventually she came to live with a woman by the name of Mary McCormick, who began to almost immediately physically abuse her. Alerted to the abuse by a missionary, a man by the name of Henry Berg, then the president and founder of the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, began an investigation, which resulted in Mary McCormick being arrested and brought to trial. Mary Ellen Wilson, now 10 years old, testified at that trial. And here are her verbatim comments. My father and mother are both dead. I don't know how old I am. I have no recollection of a time when I did not live with the Connollys. Mama has been in the habit of whipping and beating me almost every day. She used to whip me with a twisted whip, a piece of rawhide. The whip always left a black and blue mark on my body. I now have black and blue marks on my head, which were made by Mama, and also a cut on the left side of my forehead, which was made by a pair of scissors. She struck me with the scissors and cut me. I have no recollection of ever having been kissed by anyone. I have never been kissed by Mama. I have never been taken on my mama's lap and caressed or petted. I never dared to speak to anybody because if I did, I would just get whipped. I do not know why I was whipped. Mama never said anything to me when she whipped me. I do not want to go back to live with mama because she beats me so. I have no recollection of ever having been on the street in my life. As the direct result of this case, the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children was founded. And ironic, of course, as it followed the Organization for Cruelty to Animals. And as for Mary Ellen Wilson, she would go on to marry, have two daughters, both of whom became school teachers. In addition, she adopted a third daughter who went on to become a successful businesswoman. Mary Ellen Wilson, for the most part, lived a quiet life and passed away in 1956 at the age of 95. Emily Reese was born to Louis and Laura Amelia Reese in 1892. Her parents separated shortly thereafter, and Emily and her older brother Richard were remanded to the custody of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. In 1905, Emily was sent to the Elizabeth Home for Girls, described as an institution that housed girls deemed incorrigible. An initial placement with a family in New Rochelle did not work out, and Emily was returned to the Elizabeth Home. In 1906, at the age of 13, Emily was put on an orphan train destined for Iowa. However, during a stopover in Chicago, it was arranged for Emily to be taken into the household of a Mr. and Mrs. Parker. Less than a year later, Mrs. Parker became seriously ill, and Emily was removed from the home. She was to experience multiple placements with various families in Iowa, moving from one to the next, 
for reasons that varied from concerns about her past, quarreling with other children, a misfortune involving theft, and another family's relocation to another state. In 1910, at the age of 18, Emily was placed with the other another family in Milton Junction, Wisconsin. Here, she helped with the chores, teamed with the lady of the house to enter frequent baking contests with much success, and from where she was able to study nursing. Eventually, Emily returned to Wisconsin, where she met her future husband, Earl Kidder. They were to have seven children together. In 1927, she returned for a brief visit to New York City, where she had had the opportunity to meet the brothers and sisters she never knew. In March of 1986, Earl and Emily Kidder celebrated their 74th wedding anniversary. Earl passed away in July of that same year. And Emily, a few months later in November. She was 94 years of age and 81 years removed from her ride on the orphan train. As a part of the orphan train process, there were agents uh, called placement agents who supervised the children both before they left on the orphan train and while they were on the orphan train. And such was a man by the name of Charles R. Fry. His was an extraordinary life, a life devoted to children, poor children. He became foster grandfather to thousands of New York City's neglected slum kids. When he walked down the city's back streets, they came running to him from all directions, calling out his name, catching on to his sleeve and coattails, asking to be picked up and hugged. Charles R. Fry was born in Washington, D.C. before the middle of the 19th century. He was trained in carpentry and cabinet making while he was still in his teens. His father was too poor to send him to high school. In those days, New York City was full of orphaned and homeless boys, street rats, the police used to call them. They slept where they could, in doorways, under stairways, on barges, in discarded packing boxes, and on piles of rubbish. They begged for scraps of food at the kitchen door of restaurants, hotels, and private homes. Some of them earned a little money by selling newspapers, shining shoes, or peddling matches and toothpicks. Others would panhandle. Still others stole. Many went about in gangs. Most of them were without shoes, and many had no shirts. It was the Children's Aid Society which first set about trying to help them. The society opened schools and lodging houses and which for a few pennies. And it should be remembered that a nominal charge was still made to homeless, destitute children to eliminate from their minds the stigma of charity. For the wild boys had their own kind of pride. They could get good, simple, warm meals and clean beds, and where if they wanted it, they could also get instruction in useful trades. There was one of those early industrial schools that Charles R. Fry first headed. 
one of those lodging houses that he first ran. By the time Charles Fry finally withdrew from active participation in that work, the society had rescued nearly 50,000 once homeless and hopeless children. Charles R. Fry was a humble man. He saw his role as a humble one and never boasted of it. He said, I try to be to the weak strength to the discouraged and disheartened encouragement and to all protection. In short, a friend in need, journeying up and down, always within calling distance, so that our little ones may surely feel that they have never really been cast off. By 1929, on the eve of the Great Depression, the orphan trains had stopped running. Alice Buellis Ayler was one of the last three children to make the ride out west. Too old to adopt, she moved from family to family and considered herself a hired hand without pay. She married at age 20, moved to Oklahoma, had two children. She also adopted a third child. She obtained a college degree and then a master's degree. Later in life, while involved with the Orphan Train Heritage Society, she would say, some people are bitter about the trains, but not me. Even though there were some hard times, they probably saved my life. The perception of the Orphan Trains and of Charles Loring Brace, even today, is generally polarized. There are those who believe that Brace's motives were not driven by benevolence, but by a desire to separate children from parents he viewed as inferior. Brace, without the benefit of retrospection and the lessons of more than 100 years, expressed his frustration in the following words. When a child of the streets stands before you in rags with tear-stained face, you cannot easily forget him, and yet you are perplexed what to do. The human soul is difficult to interfere with. You hesitate. How far should you go? Today, there are only an estimated 50 living orphan-trained writers. Their legacy includes two children who grew up to become governors. Two became members of Congress. Hundreds became bankers, lawyers, doctors, and members of the clergy. There were thousands who fought at Bellow Wood during World War I and who stormed the beaches at Normandy and Iwo Jima in World War II. And tens of thousands who were members of this country's greatest generation. There are an estimated two to four million living descendants of the orphan trains. Emily Reese's granddaughter is one of them. They are a testimony to one man's vision and to a remarkable period in American history. And so now it's time to tell this story of children lost to our streets and institutions 
And the heroes, the heroes who fought for their liberation. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (laughs) 